We're going to welcome you this morning. My name is Danny LaFalls. I have the joy of serving as a pastor here at our University Boulevard campus. We're glad you're here this morning. And we want to go into Genesis chapter 12. So if you have a Bible with you, Genesis chapter 12 is where we'll camp out for the majority of our time together. As you're turning there, I just want to let you know that this morning we are rolling into week two of our, our sermon series for Christmas. It's our Advent sermon series. Max did a great job of kicking us off last week, and now we roll in again to week two. And if, if you're wondering, like, what are we doing for Christmas? What's our focus this year? I want to remind you of our, some of our focuses in previous years. So we have talked at Christmas time about everything from prophecies that point to Jesus, like Isaiah chapter 9. We have focused on different small stories that operate within the large Christmas story, like Mary's story, Joseph, his story, the shepherds, their story, how their small stories operate within the greater Christmas story. We have looked at each of the Advent candles and what they represent, from hope to peace to joy to love to the Christ candle, and we've looked into the scriptures and talked about what each of those represent. But this year we're doing something that we've never done before. I'm really excited about this. We're going back into the Old Testament, and we're actually looking at the covenants from the Old Testament and how they prepared the way for Jesus' arrival. I think this is incredibly important for us as a church and as believers to understand the pivotal role that covenants played in the gospel story and why they still apply to us today. As we look at these Old Testament covenants, we're going to learn that they absolutely laid a foundation for what we read about in John chapter 1. Remember the words of John chapter 1, verse 14. It was said about Jesus. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen the glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That at the arrival of Jesus, these covenants actually played a role to bring us to the point to where the word became flesh and the word dwelt among us. For Jesus to come and to live among us, to die for us, to raise from the dead, to ascend into heaven, and to offer us redemption, these covenants laid the groundwork. So this morning, for us really to understand the pivotal role of covenants, we have to understand what were covenants? What are they? Like, what role did they play? It has been said about covenants that covenants hold our Bibles together. That the Bible is actually built around covenants. That covenants shape so much of what God intended to shape his word. The covenants are that pivotal we know that in the Old Testament, covenants were very prominent. That God made a covenant with Noah. That's what Max talked about last week. God made a covenant with Abraham. That's what we're going to focus on today. God made a covenant with Moses. And then God made a covenant with David. And then you get into the New Testament and you realize that we as believers live and operate in a new covenant now. So when we talk about covenants, when the Bible talks about covenants, what exactly are covenants? Are they prophecies? Are they poems? Are they proverbs? Here's an operating definition here for 
a biblical covenant. It is a contract, a treaty, a ritual agreement between two parties. When the Bible talks about covenants, it's talking about a contract, a treaty, a ritual agreement between two parties. It's key for us to understand this morning also that in ancient days, ancient times, that there were actually two different types of covenants. The first covenant was a parity covenant. That was a covenant that operated between two equal parties. So for example, Abraham and his servant made a parity covenant. Remember, Abraham actually sent his servant out to find a wife for his son Isaac. And I know this is kind of a little weird, but, and I don't fully understand it, but it's in the Bible, that the servant placed his hand underneath Abraham's thigh. I like personal space. That would invade my personal space. But he made a covenant. It was a covenant between two equal parties. But then we also understand that there's a second type of covenant, and this is really key for us to understand because this is the type of covenant that we'll talk about today. It was also the type of covenant that God had with Noah, Moses, and with David. It was a very specific type of covenant called a suzerain vassal. (laughs) You guys are like, "Uh, what? First of all, that's not a woman's name, as far as I know, suzerain vassal. And second of all, I don't think it's a body part. So if you woke up this morning, you're like, man, I think I pulled my suzerain vassal last night. That's not what happened. A suzerain vassal is a very specific type of covenant because it was a pact, a covenant, an agreement, a treaty between a greater and a lesser. Again, it was a covenant between a greater and a lesser. So it was not a covenant between two equal parties. There is a greater party in this covenant, and there is a lesser party in this covenant. And this is important, I think, for us to understand as we learn about these covenants and how they prepare the way for Jesus, because the greater in these covenants is God himself. In our last song in our service today, we will proclaim together as a church, you have no rival, you have no equal, that God is the absolute greater here. He is not our homeboy. He's far more majestic and glorious and powerful than we will ever dream to be. And in these covenants, there is a lesser. It's a right-sizing of us, broken humanity, before an awesome, all-powerful God. So this type of covenant that we're going to see between God and Abraham is a suzerain vassal covenant, a covenant between a greater in God and a lesser in a broken human being. But here's the key part for us this morning. We are actually going to find ourselves in this covenant today by God's grace. So here we go. Genesis chapter 12 this morning. The covenant that God made with Abraham and how it prepared the way for Jesus. Genesis 12, let's look at verses 1 through 3 together. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land. We'll come back to that in a moment. That's going to be important. The land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation. 
That's also important. We're going to come back to that in a moment as well. And I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I would mark that one also. It's important. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. So to understand this moment here, I think we have to rewind just a little bit before Abraham and understand what took place. Let's go all the way back to Noah for a moment. Remember Noah. God proclaimed there was a flood that was coming. He commanded Noah to build an ark with his family. Why did God do that? We know that evil had flourished within this world. And praise God that he opposes evil. We should be happy about that, right? That he's a holy, just God who opposes evil. And in his opposition of evil, he actually pours out judgment upon this earth through the flood. There's judgment there, but I think there's also grace there as well. But what do we know after the flood? We know that humanity that is broken, that's sinful, that's dysfunctional, went right back, it defaulted back to its old ways, and it begins to flourish in evil once again. We know that all of this kind of comes to a a boiling point at a place called Babel. It was a place where humanity joined together and they wanted to outrank God or outposition God, so they decided that they would build a tower that would be higher than God, showing their superiority over God. I don't know what brainstorming meeting took place and when that sounded great, writing it up on a whiteboard, but apparently it did with humanity, but it did not go well for them because what does God do? He creates confusion and scatters the nations out. If you're God at this point, you're probably angry. Yet God, out of his amazing grace, here in Genesis chapter 12, chooses a man and says, I'm actually going to make a covenant with you, Abraham. I'm going to make a covenant with you, Abraham. Now, this is really fascinating to me, church. Here's why. Because if you and I were... God in God's place, and we were choosing some person in humanity to make a covenant with, our resume, or not resume so much, but probably, probably um, our qualifications that we would demand out of that person is not exactly what God looked for. Because if you and I are trying to choose, okay, I want this guy to be the one I make a covenant with, we're probably thinking it needs to be somebody of strong faith. Now, this guy has to have a deep faith. We're probably thinking this guy has to have leadership qualities. This guy, if if we're going to make a covenant with him, he really needs to have a great marriage and a flourishing family. If we're looking out and we're thinking, okay, this guy needs to be confident. He absolutely needs to be confident as well. And here's the problem is that when you begin to research Abraham, you read about him, you learn about his life, he fits none of those qualifications that you and I would have required. He's 75 years old. He's not a young guy. He doesn't have a great faith. In chapter 15, chapter 17, and chapter 22, he doubts God's plans. 
over and over and over. His wife, she's barren. He doesn't have a family. And all the indications that, that we see here in, in the scriptures, that it all indicates that his marriage actually wasn't that great as well. And this is the guy that God promises three things to. Look back at the passage together. Notice what God promises him. Number one, he promises a land. He actually calls Abraham out of his homeland, and he says, I'm taking you to a land, and you find out in chapter 15 more about this land. This is the place that you will live and your family will live. That's kind of problematic because at this point he doesn't have a family. But God promises a land. Number two, God promises a people. God promises a people to Abraham. Did you notice there? He said, out of you I will make a great nation. Out of your family, which he doesn't have at this point, I will make you a great nation. And remember how old he was? 75. 75 years old. I will make a great nation. Here's the cool thing about this. From the time of Abraham until you get to the time of Moses and God's people living in enslavement in Egypt, that group of people that God formed out of the family of Abraham had moved and grown to the point of two million people. God's pretty awesome. It's pretty awesome. Thirdly, God promises Abraham, not only will I make this nation out of you, but I will use this nation to be a blessing to who? Did you catch that? To all nations. You will be a blessing actually not just to the people in your holy huddle, but know you will look outwardly now and you will be a blessing to all nations. So you, there will be a universal blessing. So he promises a land, he promises a people, and he promises a universal blessing to Abraham. And then when you skip over to chapter 15, this is when God takes those promises and he makes a covenant with Abraham. Look at verses 17 and 18 together in chapter 15. Here's the covenant. And when the sun had gone down, It was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. For some of the men in the room, you, you, I just got your attention, right? You're like, oh, wow, fire, fire, great, I'm in. A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. He made a covenant with him. Now, this is really interesting, right? Because the way that God would take those promises of a land, of a people, and a universal blessing, and he would form those now into a covenant with Abraham, it's really interesting in how he would choose to do this, right? The way this took place, this was a blood covenant. It meant that God chose animals, and he actually sacrificed those animals, cutting them into two pieces. Now, this is kind of graphic, right? He took one piece, he placed it on the left. He took another piece, he placed it on the right. And he basically made an aisle. He made an aisle. 
And you notice here that there is something that passed between those sacrifices. What did he say? He said it was a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. What did that represent? It represented something, right? But what we see in the Old Testament is that fire represents the presence of God. Remember the pillar of fire that led the people through the wilderness, God's people through the wilderness later on. That represented the very presence of God. And here in this situation, most commentators believe that it was representing the presence of God. So just put all this together now. You have these sacrifices making an aisle and the very presence of God is walking between those sacrifices. Why, what does that mean? This is mind blowing. For a person to walk between the sacrifices it, in a covenant situation, it meant this, that they were proclaiming to the person they made a covenant with, that if I break this covenant, if I go back on my word, if I leave this covenant, my life will become exactly like the animals that were sacrificed. Let that sink in for a moment. The God of the universe who created all things, who is the most supreme, powerful being in all of existence, he always has been, he always will, right? That same God looked at a 75-year-old man, lacking in confidence, lacking in faith, and he looks at that man and he says, if I break this covenant, my life will become like the sacrifices. My life will end. Which that's totally impossible theologically, by the way, for God to die. But that was the statement God was making to Abraham that day. Why? Because God drew a line in the sand and said, this is how serious I am about forming my people. This is how much it means to me to have a people. And to have a people that I will use to be a blessing to the nations. To be a blessing to all people. Apparently that was really important to God. And still today is. And here's my fear, church. My fear is that we hear this, we read it, and we go, oh, okay, that's great. And we're more excited about the name suzerain vassal than actually the implications of this covenant for our lives. That maybe somehow the brilliance of this covenant, the amazement at this covenant, we've lost a little bit of that. We don't have a real awe before this covenant and before the God who made this covenant. So let me illustrate it in a very, very lighthearted way here. When I was in fourth grade, it was this time of the year. My mom and my dad and I, we, we hopped in our truck and we drove 45 minutes south of my hometown to Tulsa, Oklahoma. And we went to the one Toys R Us in Tulsa. We went there for the purpose because it was my parents that said, hey, we're, it's a really busy season of life right now. We don't have a lot of time to go Christmas shopping, so we're just going to knock all of this out in one, one stop. So we pull into Toys R Us. Again, I'm in fourth grade. I'm so excited about this. And some of you guys are like, this is totally like anti-Christmas. Here's why. My dad and I stayed in the truck. My mom went in, and she bought my Christmas presents and came back out. 
hey, I still got Christmas presents, all right? So joke's on you. Um, no, my parents were extremely generous to me and kind. It's just the way it had to work out that year. So my mom comes in, um, back into the truck. I close my eyes, and then we start trekking back 45 minutes north. <laughs> About halfway there, I was laying down in the truck, and my parents thought I was asleep. I know, right? Some of you, like traditionalists, are like, this can't happen. You can't know what you're going to get for Christmas. My dad turned to my mom and said, he's asleep. My mom said, yeah, I think he's asleep. And my dad said, what would you get him? And my mom rattled off all my presents. <laughs> Some of you just want to, like, you feel dirty right now, don't you? You do. So I couldn't hold it in. I thought, well, I have one of two options. One, I just fake sleeping. Or two, I'll be honest, I, took the, I just started laughing. I started laughing. My parents were like, you were awake this whole time. I'm like, yeah, and thanks. Merry Christmas. Thank you, all right, by the way. I'm excited about what I'm getting. This is great. And my, again, my parents were so generous during that time. They, they were great. But it did, once I arrived at Christmas Day, kind of the luster, the excitement, the thrill of opening these presents was a little bit lost, right? I fear that. That if we hear this covenant, we think, oh, that's, that's great. Like we miss the brilliance of this. We miss the power of it. And maybe more, most importantly, we miss what it means for our lives. Because here's the good news, church. If you are a believer in Christ, you are a part of this covenant. And you may say, well, hold on. There's a big gap of time between Abraham and us, right? Put it together for a moment. God forms a nation out of his family. Again, that nation grew to two million people by the time of Moses. And we know that nation, that God's people stayed together even when they would abandon God. And God would bring him back by his grace. And then you open up your Bible and you read Matthew chapter 1 and you see the lineage from Abraham down to Moses. You see all the way down to David. And then who's in that lineage? Jesus. Well, who did Jesus come from? This holy nation that God formed through the covenant of Abraham. And then you read Galatians chapter 3. So if you have a Bible here, let's turn to Galatians 3. The Apostle Paul, who grew up in the Jewish religion, helps us connect some dots between the covenant that God made with Abraham and the church. Look at Galatians chapter 3. Look at verse 29. This is pivotal for you as a believer to understand verse 29. This is what Paul said. He connects some dots here for us. He said, and if you are Christ, in other words, if you belong to Christ, in other words, if you have believed in the gospel, his life, his death, his resurrection, if you have surrendered your life to him, I'm saying 
Jesus, here is my life. Take it. I acknowledge my sin. I acknowledge I'm not sick in my sin. I acknowledge I'm actually dead in my sin. I am nothing apart from you, Christ. I'm not my own God. I've chased after the things of this world. I turn from all that and I turn to your grace, your love, your mercy, your truth. And I place my life in your hands now. Like if that is you, you've surrendered your life to Christ. He says, and if you are, you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Now, how many of us have read that before and we're like, Abraham's not what are we talking about? Heirs according to, help me out, according to what? Promise. What promise? The covenant that God made with Abraham that he would form, God would form his people. And he would form a people that would be a blessing to all peoples, the nations. If you're here and you're a believer in Christ, according to what Paul just proclaimed to you, you are now a part of that people that God began to form with Abraham. I hope that blows your mind this morning. I hope that you haven't lost in awe, a thrill, inspiration, conviction in your life. I hope you haven't lost that about this covenant because he, the God of the universe said, you're part of my people through the gospel. You're certainly a part of my people now. And I think what's really incredible, though, is that when you look at the verse prior, verse 28, look at the description of the people now that you're a part of. This is God's people. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, God is saying, here's my people. You want a good description of them? It is the most the greatest multi-ethnic, multi-generational group of people from all over the world that are all one in Christ. That's my people. Church, this is your people. This is your people now as a believer. And think about what that means. Think about the implications of the reality that you belong to this group of people. The implications are incredible. For example, just consider that you now belong to a people that is, number one, for God's own possession. Paul said in Titus chapter 2, verse 14, that he, Jesus, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify us for himself a people of his own possession. God redeemed you so that you would be for his own possession. And you're part of a people for his own possession. Not only that, that you're now a part of a people that is set apart. That now, 
You are a part of a people that is set apart. Remember a few weeks ago in 1 Peter, we studied 1 Peter 2, verse 9, when Peter talks about who the church is now, the identity of the church, that as believers, he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. And a holy nation, holy being the key word there, holy meaning set apart, set apart from this broken, fallen world. That's the people that you belong to now. Not a group of self-righteous, arrogant people, but people who have been melted by the grace of God, who are humble, who are set apart for Christ. It also means that now you are a people who live by another story. Think about it. You as a believer in Christ, you live by a different story than the story of this world now. Your story is the gospel story. It is the story that God has written throughout all of human history. You're a part of that story now. You live by another story. It also means that you're part of a people that are now unified in Christ. Several years ago, in a book, I read a paragraph that was quoted from D.A. Carson. And when I read this paragraph, it, um, it hit me hard. Because I think Carson gives a great description of the church, but also how the church is unified in Christ now. Think about all the division in the world now. Think about all the brokenness. Think, think about how we as a society and we as humanity all across the world, we don't naturally operate in unity. But the church does. Because Christ is the ultimate unifier. This is what Carson said. This is the part that got me. He said, the church is made up of natural enemies. The church is made up of natural enemies what binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents. These Texans have the best. Probably the British do. But anyhow, that's neither here nor there. Common jobs or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they have all been saved by Jesus. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. That is a foreign concept to the broken world that you and I live in today. That there can be such a diverse group of people that would actually come together and be unified in Jesus. That's the people. Those are the people that you belong to now. Those are God's people. It also means, lastly, that you are a part of a people from all the peoples of the world. You are a part of a people from all the peoples of the world. There's so many things I'm looking forward to in eternal glory in heaven. I'm sure for you, you have different aspects you're so excited about. Standing in the full presence of God for eternity, that's going to be incredible. But also being completely unified and praising Jesus 
in all these different languages, that is amazing diversity that the world cannot fathom. Because Jesus, through the covenant of Abraham, has fulfilled that covenant. And through the Great Commission, he has led us to all the parts of the world to see people come to know Christ so that, yes, they would be redeemed by our Savior, but also a side benefit that for all of eternity, it is an incredible, diverse party. The world says that can never happen. And Jesus makes it possible. So what do we do with this, church? Is it simply that we think, oh, okay, all right, uh, Abrahamic covenant, got it, check. Let's move on to the Moses covenant next week. Is that what we do with this? Is it head knowledge for us? Like, what, what do we do with this? Like, what, how do we move forward with this? What, does it do anything to our lives? Does it change us? Are there spiritual light bulbs that are being turned on for us right now to say, oh, my goodness, yes, this is what I belong to now. This is what God intended for me. Look at the great lengths in which God went to so that I would be a part of this count. I would be a part of this people. Does it move us? Does it change us? I don't think God intends for his word to be proclaimed and we just leave kind of ho-hum and unaffected. So I want to ask you a few questions in closing. Number one, I want to ask you, Do you belong to this community that we talked about this morning? The community that was formed out of this covenant between God and Abraham and was fully, completely fulfilled through Jesus. I'm not asking, did you grow up in church? I'm not asking, are you a good moral person? I'm not asking, do you try to do the right things in life? That is all great. I'm not asking, did you grow up in a Christian family to where grandma brought you to First Baptist whatever every Sunday and praise God for grandma. I'm asking you, have you surrendered your life to Jesus? Because he has extended through grace and mercy and love and truth. He has extended an invitation to you when he died on that cross and when he rose from that grave. He extended to you an invitation to enter into a relationship with him and to be a part of his family now. I never want to assume that in East Texas the gospel has been grasped and understood by every person that goes to church. And maybe for you today it is, your response is, I'm giving my life to Christ. I've pursued this world. It has not worked out for me. But Jesus offers me something that will change my life. And if that is you, we would love to talk with you more after the service or start a conversation with you or whatever that looks like. Second question this morning. Does your welcoming of others reflect the way that God has welcomed you into his family, to his people. Does your welcoming 
of others, into your life, into your home, into your world? Does that reflect the same way that God has welcomed you into his life, into his family, to his people? I mean, this is straight from Romans chapter 16. Welcome others as God has first welcomed you. We should be, as believers, marked, identified by the way that we are hospitable and welcoming to others around us. Does your welcoming reflect the way that God has welcomed you through this Abrahamic covenant? Or are you just doing your own thing? Thirdly, do others tangibly witness you longing for others to be a part of God's people? Keyword, tangibly. We can say all day long, yes, yes, I know I should have a heart for the lost. But do people see day in and day out in your life tangible examples of how you have a heart for those who are not part of God's family? When people look at your life, is that an evidence in your life that you have a hunger, a desire, a yearning within you to see people who are not experiencing the belonging of this family? In other words, are you, are you pursuing the lost? People who don't know. And lastly, does your belonging to God's people lead to blessing others? Remember, God formed a nation out of this covenant, but he had an intentional design for this nation. What would happen? They would be a blessing to who? To the nations. They'd be a blessing to the nations. Day in and day out, do you understand that your belonging to God's people has actually equipped you and has developed you and now you can go out and be a blessing to those around you. Church, you are a part and evidence of this promise that God made with Abraham years upon years ago. And through Christ, you and I have the joy of being now a part of this family of God. Let's pray together. I would love to give you uh, just a moment, all of us a moment here. Maybe your response this morning is one of gratitude. God, thank you that you've invited me to be a part of this people, this group, this community. Maybe your response this morning is, Maybe more along the lines of confession and repentance. Lord, I've missed it. I've run from this. Maybe your response this morning is, Lord, I'm giving my life to you. I'm, I'm tired. And I am falling into your arms, Jesus, and surrender. We're probably all in different places in life and in our walk with the Lord. So spend some time with him, responding to him and his word.